nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Hello, you are joining us again for Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, and this is Leanne Meyer. And I am very happy to be able to have a wonderful guest with us today. Our topic today is going to be um, healing traumatic nursing experiences. And my guest will be Marianne Rich, and I'll introduce her in just a minute. I just wanted to kind of bring us in here with, um, you know, we're all familiar with the PTSD effects that our military experience um, has had on, on the men and women in the military when they have been in active war zones. But we don't often think about the nurses who are there treating those military personnel. So Marianne Rich is both the nurse who served in Iraq and a nurse who has experienced many traumatic decisions in her everyday work. And she has some interesting thoughts about those. So we will examine the effects of psychological trauma on nurse, nurses in both arenas and what can help. So thank you for turning in. And I want to welcome Marianne Rich. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you, um, how you got to be where you are? Oh, yes. Well, thank you for having me on today. And, um, well, I've been a nurse for about um, over 40 years. I started out initially as an Army nurse during the Vietnam era, and then I uh, stayed in the reserves uh, throughout my nursing career until I retired from the reserves. I initially worked in the intensive care areas. I did some home health care. I did hospice. Um, had a brief break where I did uh, pharmaceutical sales for a very short time period and then went back to nursing. I um, then went into the operating rooms and did management in the operating rooms. Um, and in my last year of the reserves, I was deployed to Iraq and where I was the chief of the operating room and... Um, also for the central processing unit, and also a liaison uh, for the provincial reconstruction team. And then after I got back from Iraq, I uh, was an um, operating room manager where I opened some operating rooms. Uh, then I went into uh, the quality department and managed the uh, quality department. And now I've decided to wind down and work as a clinical nurse educator. And that Sounds like I'm a wonderful currently. plan, and you must have a lot to be able to share with the nurses. So I'm sure they appreciate whatever you, and is it mainly operating room that you're teaching, or what is it that you're doing? Yes, uh, for the adult operating rooms. I okay. uh, cover three areas in a, a large teaching institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's very interesting, too. You must see a lot of interesting things. But I'm sure with the medical experiences that you've had along the way, and especially when you were in Iraq, I'm sure there were even more uh, amazing experiences. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Could you um, tell us a little bit about why you decided to join the military and nursing? 
Well, it um, it started out with me uh, growing up in a, a town where uh, quite a few of the boys got drafted into the Army during the Vietnam War. And uh, nobody from my immediate neighborhood returned. Uh, the other ones that were in my um, community came back uh, very damaged emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily physically. And I even saw some of them come back uh, mid-tour and noticed that there was something very different about a lot of them. And mm-hmm. I didn't like how the public uh, on TV was uh, treating them and blaming them when they didn't choose to go. They were drafted. So right. I decided that my best way of showing my support was to become an Army nurse. So that was... That took a lot of courage right there. Yeah, it, a little bit of being a rebellious teenager, too, not <laughs> wanting to go with the status. And some of not knowing what you were getting yourself into. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, at that I, time, though, you didn't have to go to Vietnam, correct? No, I did not go to Vietnam. However, I did see, I did work alongside quite a few people who had been to Vietnam and also took care of patients that came direct, directly back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, it was kind of tough. I remember as a nursing student, um, the, uh, the way they did, uh, the meals for the military, uh, the, the active duty soldiers that, um, were in the hospital is if there's any way they could ambulate, they would go down to the mess hall. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would eat with them. And I remember mm-hmm. uh, one guy who was um, missing an arm and a leg and half of his face uh-huh. sat down at the table I was at and said to me, so what do you think of the freak show? And mm-hmm. that was my first experience of dealing with someone who... Um, was so severely injured and uh, as a nurse, mm-hmm. and yet it was it was during my downtime uh, to yeah. see that quite shocking. And so, how uh, did you respond? I mean that that had to be an on the spot. What do I do now? Yeah, and my my answer at the time of being a very uh, young nursing student was, I I don't know what freak show you're talking about. I'm I'm here learning to be a nurse uh, here to help take care of patients mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's all I could respond to and then then the guys were joking around and uh, okay. then it was off from there so yeah he he just wanted to get a lay of your land of how you were going to be looking at him so yeah, <clears throat> yeah everybody de- deals with um, you know the things that come up in our lives differently and then certainly these are some that there is no preparation for at all so tell me a little bit about, I know when we talked previously, you had talked about that we think of, um, you know, PTSD associated with those very dire war s- stories, but you pointed out that nurses experience this kind of thing all the time in their everyday work. Could you talk a little about that? Well, yeah, I um, when I was working over at uh, the VA, I um, had the opportunity to see a researcher who was going beyond uh, dealing, uh, treating people with PTSD with veterans. And mm-hmm. then I, uh, she talked about what's called moral injury. Mm-hmm. And um, so I actually 
took the opportunity to go talk to her and said, is this, um, it's looking at the definition of moral injury, which um, I'll try to boil it down to the best I mm-hmm. can, is mm-hmm. when you are involved with um, either seeing someone die or severely maimed, and it's either through your actions or through um, maybe something that you did not do that mm-hmm. caused that um, to happen to the person. Um, you can become morally injured, meaning that you, ha- you feel some responsibility towards that, and the person ends up uh, having a tremendous amount of shame and guilt. And mm-hmm. so I talked to the researcher, and she said, well, absolutely, it certainly could. Uh, be something that uh, uh, healthcare providers could experience, um, and I've I've seen it happen in healthcare providers uh, where there's a medical error that happens, or someone is involved in an event and they don't speak up, mm-hmm. or sometimes in the mass casualties right. uh, that happen, you're having to triage people, and in uh, we don't do it so much in uh, civilian life as we do in the military where you have to label people as expectant, um, which we did happen. Uh, we had that happen when I was in Iraq where mm-hmm. we had to um, not treat people and mm-hmm. not try to save their lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah. all of those different <clears throat> things can certainly uh, have a, cause a person to have a moral injury from it. I think probably every single nurse ever uh, can can uh, relate to you on that one because just being in nursing, we do have situations where we have to make big decisions. Um, can you think of us maybe some of the early experiences that you had where you were in a situation that you had to make a decision and that decision kept coming back and back to you as you went? on with your career? Well, I did have um, an incident many years ago. Uh, when I first um, got out of the military, I uh, was working at different facilities, uh, trying them out to see where I wanted to work. And I had been working in the intensive care unit. So I was working as a registry nurse, and mm-hmm. I had come from a teaching hospital, so I had a lot of uh, a, a lot of experience and a lot of autonomy. And I was on night shift. I got a patient who had just come back from having open-heart surgery, um, maybe uh, a few hours after open-heart surgery. Um, all of the surgeons had gone home. Anesthesia had gone home. Mm-hmm. And I I looked over his chart and noticed that he his urine output was trending down. Mm. A uh, patient had a Swan-Gans line in, so I did a cardiac output, mm-hmm. and the cardiac output was very low. And mm-hmm. I said to uh, the charge nurse, uh, we need to contact the surgeon. This patient's cardiac output is down, and, uh, and it's trending down. And she said, what are you talking about? And I told her, I did a, showed her the Swan-Gans, and she goes, you're not supposed to touch that. Anesthesia forgot and just left that in. And I said, but oh, we know my gosh. we need to treat this patient. And they, um, they said, no, you can't do that. And I said, but I put it in the nurse's notes. And so she, they pulled me off that patient. Wow. 
they so wouldn't what? let me work with that patient. And I, <clears throat> I said to him, if we don't do something, this patient's going to be a no-code tomorrow. Wow. He's going to go into renal failure. And um, that's that ended up happening. I went back the next wow. night. And, of course, they didn't give me to that patient. Mm-hmm. But he was he was a no-code. Oh. And they were letting him die. And I was very upset because having mm-hmm. been in a teaching hospital, I saw that they could have saved that person, but this was a community hospital that didn't have mm-hmm. that type of care. Sure. And that, yeah, it's that um, let's just bury our head in the sand if we don't know what to do. Um, it's yeah. amazing that they wouldn't have taken, you know, clearly you knew what you were talking about, that they wouldn't have taken your advice and... Um, yeah, going from there. How do you think time. that's different now than it would have been when that first happened? Do you think things have changed in how nurses um, have a voice in the care of their patient? Yeah, I think that nurses now, in fact, that's something that we teach is how to escalate up the chain of command mm-hmm. and how you, if you're not getting a response, how you just keep going up right? Um, and you have that ability. But back then... Um, it haunted me for a long time. I wondered right. what, who I could have called. I mean, I was a registry nurse. I had no power there. I, I had no, no way of knowing who to contact or how to contact people. And it, it did haunt me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And do those, uh, some of those experiences come up to the level of PTSD, would you say? Well, it Certainly, that's, I think, one of the things that made me um, go into pharmaceutical sales briefly, thinking uh-huh. that um, I wanted out of nursing. I think mm-hmm. that that was probably one of the decisions that made me uh, take that jump. Mm-hmm. And then, fortunately, um, I don't know if it's through my own natural resilience or what what happened, but I fortunately went short, went back into nursing shortly after that, mm-hmm. and um, I'm glad that I did, um, because nursing has certainly grown and changed a lot, mm-hmm. but these type of things can certainly happen uh, to staff. I mean, there's times, um, after I've worked in the quality department, I see how there's system errors. Um, there is not any institution that is perfect, and... Mm-hmm. You could, as a nurse, be involved in uh, a system error, but still, the way we tend to take it very personal. Sure, sure. We want to do our very best and certainly want to see good outcomes and not um, difficult not outcomes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there's times you get difficult patients where uh, you, you don't recognize that maybe you need, there's times that you do need to listen to a patient and, mm-hmm. uh, and after that person just continues to complain over and over again, and then you realize, oh, my gosh, I should have paid mm-hmm. attention to what they were telling me. Right. Hindsight is always so wonderful. And I guess that's the advantage of experience, too, is that you start to get that hint sooner than, um, you know, when you're first encountering those kinds of things. And, um, uh, and maybe that's the intuition part of it too, that you just get a little bit more tuned in to what's really being said. I would think that would be the case, especially with military young men who don't want to admit perhaps how frightened they are or um, how much, uh, you know, they're feeling. So um, 
It looks like we're getting toward a break here, and I'd like to take a break now so that we can um, have a fresh start uh, okay. when we come back from the break. So um, this is um, Healing Traumatic Nursing Experiences with Marianne Rich, and I am so glad that everyone is listening in, and I hope that you will also be thinking about what experiences you might have had and what helped you in those when we come back from the break. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. I'd like to thank everybody for returning to the program we are talking about healing traumatic nursing experiences with Marianne Rich. And um, we've been just kind of going over a little bit of her experience and her early experience. And then some of the things, the choices that, that nurses have to make all the time 
that uh, can give what we call moral injury. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later, too. But I'd like to bring us up to um, your experience in Iraq, uh, Marianne, and just kind of explain a little bit about that, what that was like for you, and um, what kinds of um, symptoms that people experience when they start to develop PTSD. Okay. Well, um, most people, um, most of us who... uh, were deployed, uh, didn't matter what your age were, was, we, um, we were told ahead of time about um, that PTSD is something and, uh, that could happen to us. And we, um, we drilled quite a bit in practice and, and prepared for all types of war scenarios. But they never really prepare you for the actual emotional component. And mm-hmm. some of the things that um, added to it were that uh, we were working uh, 12-hour shifts when we were mm-hmm. over there and frequently without any days off at all. And um, in my area, the operating room, um, we were very short-staffed on nurses. So uh, it wasn't uncommon that we'd, um, be, we'd have, um, say, two weeks of 12-hour shifts and then a mass casualty had come in, and we'd have to come in in the middle of the night, and we'd have to work um, until uh, the cases were done. And um, I even had to uh, put the nurses on a, a sleep schedule where mm-hmm. they would take a break. I would give them a two-hour break, and they were to go take a nap. And uh, I did that approximately every six hours. And we operated like that for um, several days on end where that's all we got were two hours sleep every six hours. Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of wears you down. uh, When you don't have enough sleep, you get a little bit exhausted. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I think about some of the times I was doing 12 and 16 hour shifts in just like a weekend over four days or something. And it would take two or three days to recover from it. So I can't even wrap my brain around uh, how much that was. Yeah, and we I think of um, one time that was uh, very, very difficult was when we had um, some uh, uh, Iraqi soldiers that were brought in. Uh, A um, uh, person ran what's called a vehicle-borne IED into Mm -hmm. that was filled with petroleum and ran it into their um, uh, building and trapped them inside and it Mm. exploded and caught on fire and, you know, just throwing the petroleum everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so we got a tremendous amount of Iraqi soldiers in that were severely burned And that was one of those mass casualties that I had talked about earlier where we had to label some as expectant. And Mm -hmm. so we couldn't do anything for them. We we, uh, knew that they had too great a percentage of body burns. Mm -hmm. And at the time, our operating rooms weren't weren't busy with those patients. Um, So I... um, uh, had all of my staff go out and support in nursing duties and other ways on the units where they were trying to take care of patients. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and I went over and helped take care of the expectant patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I carried syringes of morphine mm-hmm. and uh, would just sit with an interpreter and um, and touch them and talk to them and give them uh, morphine as I knew that they were sitting there dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them asked, am I going to die? And I had to tell them, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. And they would ask me to help pray with them. Mm-hmm. So it it was sort of difficult because you don't expect that mm-hmm. in a hospital. Um, and you so, certainly don't see that type of thing stateside where, um, sure. unless you're in a mass casualty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if any of the listeners have had that type of experience before. And actually that type of experience is increasing, you know, with all of our, we talked earlier about climate um, challenges and, uh, you know, with the hurricanes and the fires and all the things that seem to be happening, drought and various different things that are causing some pretty extreme uh, climate reactions. Uh, there are a lot of nurses who are getting pulled into situations they've never, ever been in before, plane crashes and different things like that that go along with that. So, and, yeah, just say, say just a little bit about how you do the triage when people are coming in. What You, you said expectant, which would mean, I assume, that they're expected to die. Yes. So when, when you are the person that's doing that triage and saying you live and you die, how, how does that work? How do you make those decisions? Well, that's, um, it's usually a physician or a nurse practitioner that's doing it. And mm-hmm. uh, they, they go right into the initial staging area, and uh, they, uh, they have to quickly assess, um, for instance, those patients that were burned, uh, quickly run through what their body percentage area is. And uh, they had already had a, a discussion among the uh, people doing the triage um, at what level we would, what per body percentage we would um, not treat. Or when we say not treat, we would not try to save their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we did treat with, by giving them morphine, but we also had to plan to ship them out as soon as possible because we could deplete our uh, supplies sure. very easily. Mm-hmm. So they would be shipped where then? Um, they would have been shipped out to one of the um, local Iraqi hospitals, which mm-hmm. really weren't very much at all. They, um, at that time, they did not have uh, very many physicians. Uh, they didn't have uh, any nurses, really. It, was, it would be, they'd sent, be sent to a facility that would, um, they would just put them in a bed and uh, expect the patient's family to come in and take care of them. Or they would just lay there till they died. Right. So talk about how the impact of this is on the nurses, especially those uh, horrendous shifts when you aren't sleeping, you aren't eating, and you're under extreme duress. How, how does that impact the nurses? Well, it's, um, it certainly causes... Um, an emotional scarring to the person Uh, because as a nurse you always want to help patients so it um, they can get uh, not initially but uh, sometime shortly after get very depressed Um, and that's what we kind of work watch for I tried to debrief my staff as much as possible have little sessions where we would talk about it 
and how they felt. Uh, ask them, what do you think we should have done uh, differently? And, of mm-hmm. course, they, um, it was always, I, I think we should have tried to save them all. We should have tried to treat them all. Sure. But, um, and uh, the, just um, the anger uh, that you would see people have um, and uh, the constant swearing, this is, this is just ridiculous, this is stupid, this shouldn't, it shouldn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, a chaplain that had a very difficult time uh, even going through that, and uh, she walked around uh, and was just giving blessings as much as she could, and the only person she had to debrief with was me because uh, she didn't have a, a, a big mm-hmm. support system and a lot of people were afraid to even talk to the chaplain. You know, what mm-hmm. do you do for a chaplain who's grieving? And right. it's usually all of us, uh, the medical staff, going to the chaplain. Mm-hmm. So, so you, um, you've talked uh, about this um, this sense of PTSD, and I think, you know, people have heard of it, but they don't all really understand. What are the symptoms then? When do you know that somebody needs to get out of that arena, that they just cannot be in that place? Well, when if they start to um, feel any type of responsibility or guilt or shame, they're mm-hmm. going to that person will tend to withdraw. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, the research has shown that talking about the event is not going to help them because it just makes them ruminate about mm-hmm. it over and over again and play it over in their head. Um, you may see the person start, um, uh, before they even leave the profession, they may start with very self-destructive behavior, um, either high-risk things. Uh, they may start using more substances, uh, starting with drinking or uh, uh, pain medications, so mm-hmm. they'll try to self-medicate, um, and certainly um, they stop um, socializing, stop doing things that they used to love to do, and that sort of looks like PTSD, but the difference is with PTSD, there's usually a hypervigilance. The person has a fear uh, where they feel that uh, something's going to happen to them or they're going to be injured. But with moral injury, there is not that fear base. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's just a a terrible remorse that that person is going through. Mm -hmm. And uh, if if they don't get treatment, um, they can become suicidal. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's the frightening thing, is if you see someone um, who is doing suicidal behavior or someone who even attempts suicide, uh, you know that something um, is deeply bothering them. And then what? If you notice this, you know that they're having a problem, the person is not open to going somewhere and getting help or talking about these things that just feel so overwhelming to them. How? I guess I'm assuming... This might be more happening after they get home or after the um, uh, the traumas are not ongoing, or do you yeah, see that also after, in that ongoing the, stage? After the events have happened, you'll notice that the person is uh, definitely very withdrawn uh, and acting very depressed. 
and some of the things um, that you can do uh, with people or that they can do themselves is to start having sort of a, a, a gratitude list of things that uh, that they're grateful for. Um, uh, not necessarily talking about the event, uh, like I said, that just causes them to uh, ruminate, but they need to start doing uh, self-forgiveness. And uh, in the research uh, that was done at the VA, uh, Dr. Shira uh, Megwin had um, wrote about it, that she actually has them <clears throat> work on um, writing assignments on empathy and sometimes being in groups of other people in which they show empathy towards another person. Um, they are actually, by, by telling that person, no, it, it, it's, it's okay, it, it's, um, you did what you could, you, do, you did what you knew how to do, and um, with the others accepting them, they're getting compassion and forgiveness in a way. And maybe writing exercises on, on forgiveness, doing acts of kindness, helping others is mm-hmm. um, one way. You want to build up your, your positive things to mm. balance out the, the negative. And... Um, doing sort of a cognitive behavioral therapy where you recognize that just because something is starting to look similar, it doesn't mean that the entire event is going to be recreated and happen all over again. Mm-hmm. So I know there's a, a lot of people that think that it's better for veterans to talk with each other because they feel like they can't share the um what should I say, the um, nightmares that they've gone through for the fear that the other people would either um, reject them or wouldn't be able to handle what they're saying or they might actually be inflicting upon this other person the the, um, uh, tragedy, Um, you know, that feeling of what can I do? There's nothing I can do. So is it talking to... People other than veterans? Is it talking with veterans? What is, seems to be the best help? Well, it, you, would, you would pretty much need to be in your own community of, of people that would understand your history. So for veterans, it, it, it works to talk with other veterans. Uh, if, if this is in the nursing profession, uh, everybody has stories within uh, the nursing profession in which um, they've seen things that they, they didn't like the way it was going, and they can nurses can support one another. They they have an understanding of uh, what happens. I um, did have an incident when I was in Iraq, in which I was with a um, nurse anesthetist who um, picked up a syringe and thought he was giving more fentanyl, and he actually uh, ended up uh, giving a whole syringe of epi. Oh. And um, the surgeon was angry. He said, what you do? The heart rate's going up. The patient's bleeding. And so he tried to, you know, he panicked and tried to counter it. And mm-hmm. uh, the patient ended up uh, coding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got the anesthesiologist to come in and um, relieve uh, after the code. 
and I I stayed with that nurse um, anesthetist afterwards. Didn't leave him alone, mm-hmm. and just talked with him because he was he was certainly at risk yeah. of moral injury at that time. So we we just sat and we um, we talked. We talked about all the 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 good things that he's done in the past, and actually came up with sort of a plan of uh, what what he could do to prevent that from ever happening to anybody else, which is always labeling your syringes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we we started. I helped him support in starting a campaign. And that's other things. A lot of times when something happens, especially if it's a system error, uh, that person could be very key in being the promoter of new actions, new activities, and having that type of energy and going out and helping others and starting, like I said, a campaign. Yeah, I agree. Very Again, helping others that, you know, reminding of the... The positives, it, it's so true in so many areas, but certainly in these areas. Um, we're going to take another break here, and uh, we will be back in just a few minutes. Uh, the title of today's topic is Healing Traumatic Nursing Experiences. We're talking with Marianne Rich, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about some of the healing things that can be done. Um, certainly, if there's anyone who has experiences you'd like to share, please feel free to call in at 1-866-472-5792. We would be happy to hear from you. Thank you very much. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. 
It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back. Uh, we've been talking with Marianne Rich today about healing traumatic nursing experiences. The thing that I especially appreciate about this is Marianne's concept of moral injury. So um, we think of the big things, you know, the big uh, events, going to war, uh, the traumas that you see there, the even the traumas that we see now in everyday life with some of the um, tragedies that happen around us. And... Um, so they, it doesn't have to be just those big, big things. It can be smaller things, too, that it's whatever it is that keeps us, well, you use the word ruminating about it, where it just keeps going around in our head and it's all negative. Um, so talk a little bit about that um, also in um, how do we stop that voice in the head? Well, it. This, like, like you said, it could happen with anything, um, medication error uh, that happens or a delay in uh, treatment um, or even wrong site surgery um, through a system error. Any of those things uh, can certainly cause it. And um, the, the ruminating means you're, you're, you're playing it over and over in your head. And what what really helps bring you back to the present is doing um, sort of a mindfulness type exercise. You can do those in um, very easily um, within just a, a few seconds, um, such as the mindfulness breathing exercises of breathing um, in to account for and exhaling to account to four. And that brings you right back to the present. Or you can kind of scan your body and see where you feel tension. Those type of things actually help with uh, breaking that uh, past thinking cycle. Um, one of the things that I've gotten into is uh, doing meditation. And I, I make sure that I do that twice a day. I do it first thing in the morning and then later on in the afternoon for about 20 minutes. And I find that a um, very beneficial thing uh, for keeping me present. Um, Many people hear about meditation, but they they think of just being silent. And, of course, they think I can't possibly sit still for 20 minutes and be completely, you know, not thinking of anything or doing anything. So say a little bit more about the type of meditation you're doing and and what does that actually look like? Well, I I do what's called transcendental meditation, which is um, a mantra meditation, and I um, my um, uh, therapist that I had seen when I got back from the war had um, had introduced me to doing meditation, and 
um, suggested starting out with just doing any kind of nonsensical word or something and mm-hmm. had me start out doing just five minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, then you build up. And uh, 20 minutes is really the ideal. You don't need to do more than that uh, when you get to it. But there's, there's times where you don't have 20 minutes. And you know that you're going to be going into uh, some type of a stress, stressful situation. So you can just do um, a brief two-minute um, meditation, um, whether it is focusing on a word or a sound or focusing on your breath. Any of those type of um, uh, meditations are really help you with uh, resiliency and bringing you to the present. How do you deal now. with the distractions then? There's always some distraction that, you know, you're just getting down. Um, I have uh, three words that I use. I also do a meditation in the morning and evening um, uh, that is a specific chant from um, Soka Gakkai International. It's a Buddhist group, and we chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. So saying something that has meaning to us I know is important but there's always distractions it feels like um, you know I'll sit down and say to myself I'm going to sit I'm going to deepen my uh, sense of well-being and I'm going to manifest something positive before I leave here so I can you know get started really well and then you know your brain just gets taken off in 12 different directions and and that's that does happen uh, with meditation the teachers will certainly explain Look at when when something comes up, all of a sudden a thought comes up, just let it let it go, let it flow and go back to what your exercise, if it's a breathing or if it's a mantra, just uh, when you can get back to the mantra, just gently uh, say uh, to yourself the mantra over and over again, and it'll come and it'll go, and it's okay. That's just part of trying to stay present and the way distractions come. So there isn't really um, like I did it right or I did it wrong. It's more am I, do I feel um, relief from it? Is that more so not chastising yeah. yourself if you didn't do whatever it was you thought you were going to be doing? Well, just know that when, when the distractions come in, you, you just look at that as, oh, that's the amount of stress that I have that's going on in my life and mm-hmm. get back to uh, doing the mantra. And sometimes you'll find that uh, when you're meditating that you have no thoughts. You ha- mm-hmm. You're not even, you're not, you're not thinking your mantra, you're not thinking your words, you're not thinking about the breathing. You're just there, mm-hmm. present. And that's okay, too. There's, um, that's when you kind of get to a very relaxed state. Um, so it's nothing is nothing's bad uh, or wrong in doing meditation. It's just what's going on in your body at that time. If you're mm-hmm. having a lot of stress, you'll have a lot of thoughts. So there are things. There are people and and groups out there that you can learn these things, so you don't have to try and figure it out on your own. I know um, you've mentioned mindfulness also, and I've taken mindfulness classes. Um, so I know that feeling of I've got to figure out, you know, how to do this on my own isn't necessarily something we need to put on ourselves. No, and with with the Internet now, you can go on uh, the Internet and you can look up 
ways to meditate, too. So if you're mm-hmm. not someone who wants to go out and go to a class, um, I, I live in a large city, so there's uh, meditation centers all around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's plenty of opportunity out there to do it. There's books on telling you uh, certainly how you can do it. it that is just uh, one way. Other people do yoga, and yoga mm-hmm. has a form of meditation in it that is really helpful. And yeah, the, I think the, the surprise for me about yoga was the concept that the movement is less important than the breathing between it. Mm-hmm. And say a little, do you, do you do yoga? Do you have some sense of that? Um, yeah, and of course, um, as I've been aging, uh, I can't do as um, much of the uh, positions, but mm-hmm. that's okay. You just you just breathe and find that, oh, wow, a little bit of breathing and um, I can move a little bit more than I used to be able to move. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, uh, you just do what your, your body allows you to do and uh, don't beat yourself up uh, mm-hmm. about doing the perfect pose. It's not, about, it's not about that. It's about making yourself feel better afterwards. Mm-hmm. So affirming yourself is really what it comes down to is when those negative self-talk is coming in, it's finding a way to affirm who you truly are and, and um, that you're valuable, any efforts that you're making, even if they don't go quite the way that you had hoped they would go, um, that you're still, um, you're still doing something valuable. Yeah, and uh, there's, there's many things that you can do that are... Uh, being affirmative to yourself, and some of the fun things that I've even tried is the uh, free writing, where uh, writing, writing, mm-hmm. where, where you're actually um, sitting down either on a computer or handwriting something, mm-hmm. where you just uh, open a book, read a phrase out of a book, and then then start just writing a story, making up stuff, mm-hmm. and. Uh, seeing what comes out of it, and it, it's kind of fun. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you come up with a lot of stuff. Another thing so is no edi- editing, no uh, again, you know, wrong word or whatever. Just keep writing and don't stop. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's your story. What comes out? Mm-hmm. Um, another little thing that's sort of like a, a, a loving kindness to do to yourself is uh, if you have time. When you first wake up, write down your dreams. Um, that is, um, that's kind of a fun thing because dreams can be just so bizarre. Not just yeah. not to look at them for meaning or anything. Yeah, just, right. Just to log them and write them down, and it's it's almost like massaging yourself mm. uh, by uh, uh, putting it down and writing with what uh, what you were dreaming about over the night. Right. And you can find that you have a great sense of humor. Your subconscious comes up with the silliest things yeah, in your right. dreams. Yeah. Uh, so support groups, uh, I know talking, and again, I was a little interested when you said that uh, that ruminating or that talking about the event is often not very helpful because uh, you just ruminate and it just keeps building that... Um, pressure. Uh, but yet it seems like for women, particularly often being able to talk is the thing that can help diminish 
Is that just later after the trauma? Well, it um, it depends on on what the trauma is. If it's something, if the trauma is something that you are feeling shame for mm-hmm. or guilt about, then um, not necessarily talking about it, maybe recreating a, a different story, but it, like I said, sometimes that, that talking about it is not necessarily helpful. Planning for the future mm-hmm. is more of a helpful thing uh, if you can come up with um, missions and plans mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. of what you may possibly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's... Um, Going down the path of always talking about the event over and over again mm-hmm. is is not necessarily going to give you any new insight into it or or necessarily healing from it. Sometimes you've got to take some some type of positive thought action. One of the things that kind of goes along with that talking is I'm also familiar with something called EMDR, which was started with the Vietnam vets when they were returning. <clears throat> to try and help them to get through some of the PTSD that they were experiencing. And if you're not familiar with it, it's eye motion desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, it's basically, it has some talk element to it, but the main aspect of it is that you're having some sort of a, a trigger signal going from one that helps move from one side of your brain to the other. So many people will use some sort of an electrode in one hand that buzzes in one hand than the other hand, or eye movement where they will, you'll watch uh, some dots go up and down on a screen. Um, uh, things like that, that you can do. You can even do it uh, bilateral walking. I mean, walking or patting, your leg on one side or the other can have that same thing. And what it does is it just sends um, signals across from one side of the brain to the other. And somehow or another, it seems to um, uh, improve the uh, your feeling. I just realized we just ran out of time. And so I'm going to have to stop there. But I'm hoping that perhaps we could at another time have another chance to talk. We are here uh, talking about healing traumatic nursing experiences with Marianne Rich. And I just want to mention that uh, in my talks with you, I just feel like you are an amazing woman, nurse, and soldier. I want to mention that you have a memoir, memoir that you've written. And to see it, you'd need to go to the veteransbookproject.org and then scroll down to find Marianne Rich. And I'm so sorry that we have to say goodbye. And I... Look forward to um, encouraging everybody to come back next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.